I think it's really, um, you're, you're all very fortunate and you're lucky that you've got me for this last part of the series uh, for the only reason that I've actually seen this film, which is helpful. Uh, it's been an utter education for me the last two weeks, learning about Die Hard and Love Actually, two films that I've never seen. Thankfully, I don't ever have to watch them now, which I'm, uh, quite, I'm quite happy about. I'm okay about that. But today we're looking at um, It's a Wonderful Life. Just hands up if you've seen this film. Okay, about half of the room, half of the room. It's a bit of a classic, but did you know that when it first premiered in Christmas season 1947, it was an utter flop? It was a complete failure, okay, a complete failure. And it was nominated for various Academy Awards, but it only won one, which was a Technical Achievement Award for the new method of simulating snow. Let's have a look. There it is. Nice white snow. That was the award it got. If you are, um, this chap here is James Stewart, who was an incredibly decorated actor in that era. He won Academy Awards for all sorts of things. I think you've got to be pretty disappointed if you're James Stewart that you've been trumped by a little bit of uh, white stuff. But basically, it was a big flop. And across, uh, after it came out in the 1940s, it then ended up collecting dust on loads of movie shop shelves, basically. Nobody really wanted to see it. But then there was a clerical error in the copyright status. And in the 1970s, all the major TV channels picked up this error. Uh, and they realized that they could show it for free. So literally, across 1970 and 1980, you could turn any major commercial TV channel on, and on one of them, It's a Wonderful Life would be playing. And as a result of that, it kind of grew in popularity and became a really famous film. But if you've not seen it, I'm going to give you a few highlights, because actually, it's not the greatest title for the film. You could be believed to think that for the first two hours, this is a horrendous title. Let's have a quick look. So the first thing that we learn about, this is George Bailey at the top, and it's the story of his life, and we learn about his life. And as a child, he ends up uh, rescuing his brother, who falls into a sledding accident, falls into the ice. George comes out, and he loses hearing in one of his ears for the rest of his life. It begins there. The next thing, he picks up a job in a pharmacy with Mr. Gowan. Here he is with Mr. Gowan. Mr. Gowan is facing horrendous grief from the Second World War. He's just lost his son. And Mr. Gowan makes a fatal error and fills one of the medicine bottles with poison, believe it or not. And, and George sees this. And it's George's job to deliver all the medicine around the village. Of course, George doesn't, because he doesn't want to deliver poison. And then Mr. Gowan finds out he's not done his job, so he beats George for not doing what he was meant to do. Then we move on to George's graduation. He's ready to leave the little village. He wants to go and travel the world. Suddenly his father dies, and he realizes that he needs to stay on, take over the business. Because if not, and as in all good movies, there is an evil character called Mr. Potter. Do, do, do. Can we have some boos and hisses? Okay, and George realizes if he doesn't stay, Mr. Potter will basically take over the whole place, the whole city, and he'll make everyone's life a misery. So George stays. He eventually marries. Here we are. He marries his childhood sweetheart. And up to his wedding day, he's managed to save $2,000, which is the equivalent of about $35,000 back then. He saved that to fulfill his dreams and take his wife around the world. He's going to leave, take his wife around the world. The day they're about to lie, leave, there is a run on the banks. It's absolute chaos and carnage. And George realizes he needs to stay and actually decides to give his money away to help those that are struggling. Because if not, Mr. Potter would take over and make everything horrendous. Eight years on and two hours into the film, we eventually get to the main event where stupid Uncle Billy, who works for George, 
somehow manages to lose $8,000 of his company's business. Just gone like that. And George is like beside himself. He takes responsibility. He is utterly despairing. And for one small moment, George contemplates that he will end it all and he's actually going to commit suicide. Here we are here. He's in a complete state. So we're going to pause there on the film, but it doesn't really suggest a wonderful life, does it? It's not a great story. It's not a great story for the first two hours. Not a wonderful life. And it's set in this Christmas season, which is all meant to be about goodwill, kindness, generosity, peace. And we're not really seeing that at all. But the reality is, I think this story is very, very relevant to today. Very relevant to the broken lives and the broken world that we see all around us. In fact, I'm sure you all know people, or maybe you're even journeying through things yourself, that are a bit like George, things that point to anything other than a wonderful life. Things that point to anything other than a wonderful life. And I actually think that the Christmas season almost shines a massive big spotlight on all the struggles and the suffering. It's like our eyes are opened afresh. When we're meant to be feeling all this really great stuff, our eyes are opened afresh to all those over this season that are going to suffer that will go without. Let's just have a look into this, some stats for you. Do you know that nine million people will die of hunger this year? There will be millions of people caught up in 40 wars that are taking place in the globe right now. Those wars are not going to stop because it's Christmas. Millions of people caught up in that. Closer to home in the UK, there are 14 million people living in poverty, and it's estimated that 4.5 of those are children. That's one in every fifth child in this country is suffering from poverty, doesn't have adequate things that they need to live. And if we look specifically at this winter season, it's suggested that 320,000 people over Christmas will be without a home. They'll be living rough on the streets or in sheltered accommodation. That's their day-to-day reality this winter. Now, I could go on. I'm not trying to put a big kind of downer on Christmas for you here, okay? I'm not trying to do that. But I do think it's only right that we ask ourselves and we examine how this radical message of Jesus that we see at Christmas is relevant to this broken and dark world. We kind of need to know that. We need to examine that. In fact, I was really struck by something Christian said two weeks ago when he launched this series, direct quote from Christian. He said, if if Christmas isn't good news for someone stuck in isolation and darkness, then we probably aren't doing or conveying the right message about Christmas. I was really struck by that. The truth is, without Jesus, Christmas is dead. I'm sorry to be a party pooper, but that's the reality. Without Jesus, Christmas is dead is dead. It's a totally empty. In fact, this life is void of any meaning at all if Jesus is not in the equation. So I want us to wrestle with this. I don't want us to ignore it just because it's Christmas. I want us to wrestle with this. I want us to delve a little bit deeper into the Christmas story together and unpack how the message of Jesus this Christmas and in all the Christmases to come is totally relevant to this dark, broken world. Are you up for that? Can we do that together? Great. Okay, so we're going to dive in at Matthew 2. We're at the point where the wise men or the magi have just left Jesus. So he's probably estimated to be nearly two years old, one and a half maybe. They've just gone. This is what then happens. Matthew 2, 13 to 23. When they had gone, the magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, 
He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, for they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, big chunk of scripture. Quite a lot there for us to get our heads into. But first thing I want to say is that since the beginning of mankind, since the beginning of the fall, right back in Genesis 2, there has always been evil and darkness in the world, and it's no different when Jesus arrives on the scene. There's no exception, there's no safe passage made for Jesus just because he happens to be God's son. We know he's born in a stable. Actually, some people think it's a cold, dark, wet cave, probably. So basically, it's a homeless birth. Jesus is a homeless birth. And then immediately after he's born, he becomes a political refugee. With his mother and father, he is on the run, fleeing this tyrannical dictator, King Herod. And what's more, Jesus' birth, which was prophesied as being all a part of God's grand saving plan, happens slap bang in the middle of a genocide. Yet more darkness, more darkness. But this context is really, really important for our faith. The fact that Jesus arrived in and amongst all this darkness is really key. So God, in Jesus, becomes totally, totally vulnerable. He's cared for by a couple of young teenagers who've got no parental experience at all. And then he has to flee persecution and death. He moves from Bethlehem to Egypt, onto Nazareth, all within the first few years of his life. What this shows us is that God's message of hope is totally rooted in reality. It's slap bang in the middle of all the darkness. God's saving plan is not some airy-fairy message removed from real-life pains, real-life struggles. It's a rescue plan that's prepared to enter right into darkness itself. And it's from this place of darkness, it's from this place of darkness that God announces through Jesus his radical message, a message that says, you matter. You matter. Despite what the world may say, despite your circumstances, your pains, your sadness, your frustrations, your hurt, your abandonment, through the Christmas story, Creator God is shouting from the rooftops and saying, you matter. 
Isaiah 44 says, I am your creator. You were in my care even before you were born. Ephesians 1.4, long before God laid down earth's foundations, he had you in mind, had settled on you the focus of his love. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, where you're from, where you're going, you matter. You always have done and you always will do. Now, at the heart of every form of suffering, I believe this message is totally relevant. It might be hunger, abuse, sickness, sadness, depression, grief. And whilst there are both physical and emotional needs that need attending to there, ultimately knowing that you matter to create a God, that you are precious, that your life is no accident, is what your soul needs to hear and know. And this is absolutely essential because all the darkness in this world constantly tries to tell you that you don't matter, that you're not important. In fact, did you know that more than a quarter, 28% of young people in this country believe that they're going to fail in life? Before they've even got going, before they've even started they feel that they're going to fail and that there is very little hope for them at all. This must be a direct result of this broken society, of all the darkness, of all the negativity in the world that continues to say to people, you don't matter, you're not important. And yet through Jesus and through Christmas, God cuts through all of those lies, cuts through all the deceit and says, you matter. But the message is also more than just you matter. For we know that Jesus also understands. He can empathize with us in our pain, in our struggles, in our sins, in our suffering. Hebrews 4.16 says, We do not have a high priest, so Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's one thing to say you matter. It's another thing to say I understand. And through arriving as a baby right into this dark world and living the life that he did, Jesus not only announces God's message, you matter, but he also announces I understand. I empathize. He can say, I've walked this path. I've made it through. I can help you. I'm with you. I have grace, forgiveness for you. There is hope for you. And realizing this message, both that you matter and that Christ understands, is a perspective shifter. The truth that you matter to God, he knows and understands you, goes to the very core of who you are, the very core of your being, and fills you with joy. We can see this in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, in my job, I've had the privilege of taking some young people from this country to work with very, very vulnerable children and young people in Romania. Here's a picture from a few 
few years ago. And that verse that I've just read to you is what I've seen on the children's faces in Romania that I've worked with each time. Inexpressible joy. Despite the fact that they are incredibly vulnerable, they're very poor, they have very, very little, many of them are suffering life-limiting illnesses, have additional needs. I see this inexpressible joy in them because God's you matter message has shifted their perspective, has moved them towards being filled with inexpressible joy. And the time we had with them and spent with them, you just saw joy exuberate out of them, flow out of them. Now, I want us just to return to the Christmas story again, because there are two characters in it who give us an example of this perspective shift, where they've picked up their you matter and God understands message, and they've realized the significance of Christ's arrival, despite their own sufferings, and they encounter incredible joy. We're going to have a look at Luke 2, uh, verse 25 to 32. Let me read it to you. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That basically means like the comfort that a Messiah would, begin, would bring. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of all your people. So we've got Simeon, a devout and righteous man, waiting for the consolation, the comfort. And he's been waiting a long time. I don't know if you know, but the last book of the New Testament is the book of Malachi. And the first book of the New Testament where we hear of Jesus is the book of Matthew. The distance between those two is 400 years. 400 years of silence where utter, nothing is recorded about what Jesus has said to his people, or what God has said to his people. 400 years of silence. Now, if you're a follower of God, that's got to be pretty tough, isn't it? 400 years of nothing being written down. I mean, I struggle to wait for anything more than 24 hours, and I've got Amazon Prime, let alone 400 years. Now, I'm not suggesting Simeon's 400 years. Clearly, he's not. But he probably is a priest in the temple, and he would have grown up knowing the Jewish tradition, the story, all of that being promised about a Messiah that was coming. It's been a long wait. It's been tough, a difficult season. And his response is deep praise or inexpressible joy. He kind of even says, I can depart now. I can leave this life because ultimately I've seen what matters. What matters in the whole universe? I've met salvation in the baby Jesus. His response, despite the long wait, is pure joy. There's another one straight after this, another incredible encounter. We meet a lady called the prophetess Anna. She's also in the temple, and she's also endured her own real deep suffering. Let's have a look. We go on a little bit further in Luke 2, 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. 
She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little bit about Anna. So, the birth of Jesus, she's really, really old. Okay, now we can work out that in the Jewish custom, in the Jewish tradition, she was probably married at the age of 13. So, gets married at 13. She's married for seven years when she's widowed, so she's 20. We can all do the maths. She's 20 years old, and then she remains a widow until she's 84. Or, in fact, some interpretation says that she was a widow for 84 years. So if you do the maths, and if the latter interpretation is correct, she's 104 years old when Jesus arrives. So she is very old. Okay. Why is this important? You're probably sat thinking, what's this got to do with anything, Dan? Well, it is important because there was a Jewish custom at the time called Leverite marriage. And basically this meant that when a woman was widowed, the husband's brother or near kin would usually marry the man's wife. This would ensure that she was cared for. It also kind of emphasized the importance of family in the Jewish culture, and it meant that the family name would continue into new generations. Well, for Anna, this doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We can only assume at the age of 20, when her husband dies, that she's left vulnerable, isolated, impoverished, and suffering. The very fact that she's not remarried tells you that. That's kind of her scenario. And yet, despite all this suffering, what do we see in Anna? We see a woman who knows that she matters deeply to God because she devotes herself every day to the temple, walking and praying, worshipping day and night. Despite her own suffering, despite her own pain, her isolation, she's experienced a God who shows her that she matters, who empathizes, who understands her suffering, And like Simeon, her response is inexpressible joy. She's full of praise. The very moment she sees Jesus, she gives thanks. And then she starts telling everybody who's waiting for the redemption that this child is here. Jesus has arrived. That's the extent to her inexpressible joy, despite all her suffering. Both these characters, Simeon and Anna, they understood God's you matter message And I understand message. They could see that that was all wrapped up in the baby Jesus. And their response is utter joy. Not just for them, but for the whole world. The arrival of Jesus signifies God's you matter. I understand message. And it shifts our perspective. The last point to make about God's message signaled through Jesus is this. There is a different way. Come and follow me. God announces, you matter. I understand. But then says, there's a different way. Come and follow me. I think the life of Jesus can be summed up beautifully in Philippians 2. And it reveals to us this different way. Let's have a quick look together. Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus announces God's you matter and I understand message by coming to earth as a baby and then living out for us an example to follow, one that heralds a different way of living, a different way that says others matter. His humble death on the cross brings forgiveness and freedom and opens our lives to a different way, one that focuses on serving others. And this is where we can come back to George. George in It's a Wonderful Life, or Not-So-Wonderful Life, as we picked up at the beginning. You see, George didn't, really, George didn't realize that he mattered to anyone. He never understood, he never had that sense that people understood him and his pain and his suffering. Hence, momentarily, he wants to end it all. But for all of George's life, he had, in fact, lived out the message, others matter, all throughout his life. But what he really needed to know was that he mattered to God and to others. So we're going to watch a short film clip now. This launches into the final 30 minutes of the film. It's the point where George is in utter despair. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. <laughs> I passed away in it. Oh, Tom Sawyer's drying out too. You should read the new book Mark Twain's writing now. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Oh, where do you come from? Heaven? Right away, quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you, then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody? AS2, what, what, what's that AS2? 
Angel, second class. So there we are. So if you didn't pick it up, George was about to throw himself in, and he ends up saving an angel who's dived in to save him. And the rest of the story, the angel shows George what life would have been like had he not actually been born. And it reveals a much, much darker world. In fact, the village is actually called Pottersville and is owned by the evil Mr. Potter, who's making suffering happen all over the place. And, and George realizes that he has actually touched people's lives. And it all concludes in this really lovely, probably my favorite scene from the film called The Christmas Blessing, where George is back home. Uh, he's in utter financial ruin. Uh, and suddenly, most of the village, including Mr. Potter, turn up to thank George for the way that he's lived his life, to thank George for the way that he's always served and given to others. And they begin to give him money and love and care and kindness. And in one way, it solves his financial hardships and the challenges in. But much more than that, it opens George's eyes to realize he does matter, that he is loved and appreciated by God and by others. Despite the hardships and the struggles, he realizes that it is, in fact, a wonderful life. For me, in that scene, I'm reminded of what it means to say yes to God. When we heed the others matter message and we begin to live as Christ showed us, we can actually trigger immense amounts of healing, just like George did, even though he didn't know it. When we say yes to God and we're willing to live like Jesus, when we acknowledge others matter, where we put them first, we can change everything. And it's actually a much better way to live as well. So let me draw this all together. The true Christmas story is both radical and relevant to this broken world because it announces firstly God's message of love that says you matter. And then his message that says, do you know, I understand. I empathize with how hard this life is. And finally, it provides a, a radical and a practical way of living differently that challenges all the darkness we see around us. One, a message that says others matter. It can be all summed up best for me in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, which speaks about the powerful light within us. Let me just read this to you to close. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You matter to God. He loves and understands each of you so much, so much so that he chose to step down into the darkness to save you, to die on a cross for you and to give you a new way of living. And as that verse shows, to place his powerful light in every one of us so that even in the tough and dark times, we would shine out God's message of love, peace, and hope.